just what we're doing for just literally two weeks is we're just looking at um, some, call them maybe discipleship basics. So discipleship is just a fancy word that means following Jesus in real life. And last week we looked at, um, we looked at the importance of community. Like there's no such thing as a, a follower of Jesus by themselves. Like you have to have other people around you. This week we're going to look at a faith and surrender. A faith and surrender um, as two really pivotal building blocks in what it looks like to follow Jesus in real life. Um, just want to put up a Bible verse on the screen. This is from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. Yeah, so this, uh, yeah, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 4. Um, it says that God's work is by faith. So anything that you are trying to see happen in your life that's related to following Jesus, if, that, if it's ever going to happen, it's going to happen by faith. Um, God's work is always by faith. And then here's another slide. Uh, this is a verse from the book of 2 Corinthians. We live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. So it's not only that God's work is by faith, but like we walk as in like every single step we take, every single thing we do, um, it, you know, as, as, as if you're someone here tonight who would say you follow Jesus, um, that is something we do in faith. So that's why this theme is so significant. That's why we're going to talk about it. Uh, just, you know, quick, quick question we got to establish at the beginning, though, is uh, what is faith? What is faith? Uh, anyone have any, any definitions of faith? Uh, yeah, Stephen? Trusting in the things you cannot see? Okay, yeah. You know, actually, that's uh, very similar to how the Bible defines faith in Hebrews 11. Yeah. Anyone else? I'm not looking for, like, a right answer. I'm just, you know, curious what kind of answers there may be. Complete trust. I don't even know where that answer came from. It sounded like it came... Oh, Christian. Hey. I thought it was, like, you know, the voice of God, like, you know. <laughs> uh, Candace, did you have an a, a answer as well? Okay. Bo? Belief in things to hope for. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Hebrews chapter 11. Um, yeah, you know, all of those are true. Just one definition that I would give you tonight. Just, I think this is a really simple way to think about faith. Faith, it's not opposed to evidence. We'll talk about that a little later. Uh, but faith is trusting that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. Faith is trusting that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. And the Bible's filled with stories of people who got really close to God because they learned how to trust him. And we're going to look at kind of one of the, the most... Uh, well-known of, of those people, and that's the, the character of Abraham. Uh, and we're going to look at the story of Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 22 tonight. Uh, this is one of the most like powerful, pivotal moments in the story of this guy, this man named Abraham. And what we're going to do is just look at the story and to see some things that Abraham learned about faith and surrender to God. So um, we're just going to kind of go verse by verse through this story tonight. So, uh, yeah, here, here's, the, here's the way that this chapter begins. So, uh, Abraham, some of you guys might know, is this guy that God calls um, out of a pagan background. 
He follows God all the way from the city called Ur. It was sort of like the New York City of the ancient world. He travels hundreds of miles uh, to go to what we would call the promised land. And, you know, it's hundreds of miles away. He just does that because um, God instructs him to. But believe it or not, like, Abraham really didn't know God that well yet. And over the course of the, his, his life story, if you go back in the book of Genesis and you read about it, Abraham has all of these experiences where he learns what it means to trust God. So this story about God testing Abraham, this actually happens toward the end of his life. So sometime later, God tested Abraham. So what does that tell us? What that tells us is that this story is about a test. Uh, raise your hand if, you've, if you feel like you've ever uh, in, been through like a divine test before, a time of testing you know, usually, like, when you're growing up, and, like, I would say that, like, you can maybe even, like, get to the end of high school and maybe, like, not feel like you've experienced that. And then you get into young adulthood, which is, like, the age of life we're in. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like, like, you know what happens? Like, life begins to get unexpected and confusing and hard and unpredictable and disappointing. And it's like, you feel like, oh, my goodness, like, God must be testing my faith or something because this is not how I thought my life was going to go. Raise your hand if you can relate to that. Hardcore. Yes, yes, that's, that's how I feel. <laughs> so, so why, does God, why does God allow us to go through tests? Well, the goal of any kind of test is for God to grow your faith. The goal of any test is for God to grow your faith. So um, let me put up uh, just another verse on the screen. One of the ways that God can grow your faith through a test is by revealing through that test how awesome he is. So uh, this is from the book of Psalms. And notice that the word, the word test is in there. For you, O oh God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. But, okay, here's the result. Here's what happened at the end. You brought us to a place of abundance. So it was only through going through a time of testing that they were able to realize that God is a God of abundance. They, they had their view of God expand. Or, uh, you know, another reason, another way that God can grow your faith through a time of testing is, by, uh, is, is with the goal of multiplying the amount of fruit in your life. So, for example, when Jesus is about to die, he's talking to his disciples, one of the things he tells them, he's saying, like, hey, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he says any, uh, that God, the gardener, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. So like pruning is like a metaphor for testing. So believe it or not, like if you're actually like really excited about like where you're at right now in your walk with Jesus and you're like, man, I'm beginning to see God work in my life. Believe it or not, that actually may mean that God wants to like grow you through testing your faith because even branches that are fruitful, like he says, I want to like prune those so that they'll be even more fruitful. Which, by the way, is the same thing that, like, an actual gardener would do. And then, like, last of all, another way that he can grow your faith through tests is because tests glorify and please God in the end. So, um, one guy who knew a lot about testing was Peter. Remember when Peter's faith was tested when he denied Jesus three times? And he's reflecting, I think, on kind of his own story when he says uh, that these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, just this week, um, I've been really, really, really blessed by, I've been listening to this, this album 
Um, a King's Kaleidoscope album. Anyone listen to King's Kaleidoscope in the room? Good band, good band. Um, and it's just, it was just neat. I was listening to one of their most recent albums. And it was just a really neat testimony to how like, a lot of the people in this band had really gone through some really dark times in their faith. And it, like, God had brought them out the other side um, without like, having completely deconstructed their faith, without having become completely disillusioned with their faith. And like, their faith was stronger. And I was just so moved listening to this, and I thought, wow, like, God is so faithful that he can, like, hold on to people even in dark times. And so tr- testing, trials, actually gives glory to God. And those are all ways that God can use trials to grow your faith. And, and so notice also in this verse, I just want to point out, the goal of a trial is never to destroy your faith. It's never to destroy your faith, but to strengthen it. Um, it can be really easy, like, when everything is kind of coming at you to sort of feel like, man, like, is someone just trying to take me out here? But God's goal is always to use that to strengthen your faith. And the result, in the end, is freedom. Because there's no freedom like knowing Jesus more deeply. So this is not the first time um, that Abraham has gone through a test uh, but this is sort of you, what you might call the final test, where you really see, like, what can God do in a person's life whom he has taught to, to grow in what it means to trust him? Abraham kind of shows you what, what, what's possible. So, um, what was the test? Uh, Travis, do you want to go to the next, next one there? So, Starting again at the very beginning. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out, the, uh, set out for the place God had told him about. So this is just a crazy test. Like, he's being asked to take his son, and God says, I want you to offer him up to me as a sacrifice. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, at least it probably didn't make a lot of sense to, you know, like, those two servants who were there with Abraham. Like, what, what on earth is our master doing here? But just before we even talk, talk about that, uh, actually, Travis, if you go back to the, the one before, um, just notice in the story... Uh, just a couple of details. First of all, like, look how instant Abraham's obedience is here. He just says, here I am. And then, after he hears what God wants him to do, he actually gets a head start. It says, early the next morning. Like, he immediately jumps on this, and he gets up to go in obedience to what God has called him to do. So if you're anything like me and you read this, you're probably like, what on earth is the secret to this guy's faith? I mean, you know, how is it that he, like, not only obeys, but he obeys, like, so quickly without, like, it seems like he doesn't even ask any questions. I think one of the, the one of the, 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 you know, the secrets, if you will, if there is a secret, is what God had kind of walked with Abraham through before. You know, by this time, he's an old man. And as I mentioned, this is not the first one of the tests that he'd been through. I want to just point out a couple of what some of those other tests are. And actually, I want to point out that a lot of them Abraham fails. So, uh, for example, the first one you might call uh, the family test. The family test. Because when God originally says, hey, Abraham, I want you to leave the city of Ur and I want you to go to the promised land. He actually says, when he, when he tells him that, I want you to leave your father's household. 
Like, in other words, like, I want you to go by yourself, just like you and your wife. Well, as you may know, like, that doesn't happen. Abraham kind of drags his dad and his nephew along with him. And so he, like, kind of obeys halfway. Uh, he actually, because he takes his dad with him, if you read the story, he gets stuck for something like, you know, a couple of decades, kind of halfway in between the promised land and where he started because he halfway obeyed. And so he actually fails the first test, believe it or not. And then, after he gets there, there's another test you might call the famine test. Um, these names, by the way, come from a, uh, a great author named Warren Wearsby, who I'd recommend if ever you're looking for a good Christian author. But he, uh, he has a really good knack for alliteration, so this all start with the letter F. There's the family test, then there's the famine test, where there's a famine in the promised land. And you know, God didn't tell Abraham to leave the promised land. But Abraham chooses to kind of, in his own strength, like go out down to Egypt to try to find, try to find uh, food for himself. And that actually leads to him getting sidetracked. Like, remember uh, a little later in his story, there's a, 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 an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar who introduces this major complication into their lives because instead of, like, trusting God and waiting on God for his, uh, the son that God had promised, Abraham says, well, maybe I can take matters into my own hands. Maybe since my wife is barren, maybe I can sleep with her maidservant named Hagar, and then I can kind of give birth to a son in my own power, in my own strength. Well, Hagar was from Egypt. You know, it's probable that she actually uh, became a part of Abraham's household when he went down to Egypt because of the famine. So because of Abraham's, like, not trusting in God, it introduces this complexity, this complication into God's plan. So he fails that test as well. All of these, you know, there's many more. Uh, Some of them he passes, some of them he fails. But the reason I want to actually encourage you with this was that Abraham was not perfect. Abraham was not perfect, and he knew that. And in fact, I think over the years what happened, that as Abraham walked with God for 40, 50, 60, you know, however many years, um, I bet he probably started thinking something like this. I bet he started thinking, who is, who is this God? You know, like, Who is this God who would just, like, seemingly at random, just pick me and bless me for nothing I've ever done? Like, what have I ever given to this God? And on top of that, like, how is it that he could still, like, bless me? How is it that he could still, like, be faithful to all these things that he's promised me when I have failed him again and again and again and again and again and again, and again. I mean, at some point, he probably would have put the pieces together and he would have realized, like, this God is utterly different than, than like, anybody. <laughs> like, if you break a promise to the same person over and over and over and over again, do you think that person is going to continue to make promises to you? No. <laughs> no. So Abraham probably began to realize, like, there is something about this God who has called me that is utterly, utterly holy, utterly gracious, utterly different than me. What kind of God would bless a scumbag like me? So the first thing that Abraham had learned about surrender, about faith and surrender, was that he was totally poor. You know, on the outside, this guy looks rich. You know, if you read the story, he actually is rich. (laughs) He gets a lot of stuff. Uh, over the course of his travels. 
And in fact, like at this particular time in the story, he'd already received like the greatest riches that God had promised him, which was his son Isaac. So on the outside, he looks rich, but on the inside, I think Abraham knew that he was poor. He knew that everything that he had came from God's grace. He knew that the only reason that God had given him his son Isaac was that God was faithful, even when Abraham had completely blown it and screwed up. For example, uh, another example of, of a person kind of like, uh, kind of like this, uh, or, or, or sorry, not like this, a person who's sort of the opposite of, of what Abraham is here, is the rich young ruler. If you guys remember this story in the, in the New Testament, there's a guy who comes to Jesus, and he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. So he's, you know, got power, wealth, money, all that stuff. He comes to Jesus, and he just says, Jesus, you know, or he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You look at this guy, you think, wow, he's pretty sincere. Like, he's actually, like, putting himself below Jesus, you know, so it seems, asking him, like, God, I, I need you, I need something. But at the end of the story, Jesus sends him away sad, and, and he refuses to follow him. When, when Jesus says, hey, sell all you have and give to the poor. You know, here's a guy who, who thinks that he only needs Jesus as something to add. He says, oh, you know, Jesus, just like, what's the cherry on top? What's the thing I need to add to my life so that I can have like a 100% life rather than like a 90% life? And Jesus says, no, you completely misunderstand me. You think, you, you think you're rich? You think you have something? You think, therefore, you can just kind of add me like sprinkles on top to your life? Like, no, you are totally, utterly spiritually poor. Without me, you have nothing. And so you can't just add me to your life. I'm either the foundation and I'm everything or I'm nothing. I'm 100% or I'm 0%. God isn't interested in redeeming people who are perfect because there are no perfect people except for Jesus. God isn't interested in redeeming perfect people, but he is interested in perfecting redeemed people. He is interested in perfecting redeemed people. Let's keep going. Uh, here's the next couple of verses. Verses 4 and 5. So uh, Abraham saddles his donkey. He sets out. He's going to the place God's going to show him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. So I want to point out here, just notice Notice Abraham's confidence in God's faithfulness. Look what he tells the servants. He doesn't say, you know, we'll go up the mountain and then I'll come back to you. You know, that's what they would have thought because, like, he's supposed to sacrifice his son, so only one of them is supposed to come down the mountain, right? But no, what does he say? He says, I and the boy will go over there, we will worship, and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. Abraham believed that somehow God was going to spare his son. And the reason he knew that, you know, how, how did he know that? You know, how, how did he just have blind faith, you know? Like, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins, everyone ever, anyone ever heard of him, the famous atheist? He, you know, he, he's a guy who would say any kind of faith is just believing without evidence. It's blind. Um, you know, my grandfather, uh, on my dad's side, was not, to this day, is not a, not a Christian, um, but when he was dating my grandmother, my grandmother was from a big Catholic family. And so uh, my grandmother wanted my, my granddad to become Catholic. And so she sent him to the Catholic priest. And she thought, well, maybe if I just send him to the priest, you know, then he'll just answer all of his questions. And my granddad had questions. So he went to the priest and he tried to talk to the priest about his questions. 
And, and, you know, whenever the priest didn't know a good answer, he would just say, well, you just have to have faith. And that's a terrible answer. <laughs> it's a terrible answer. I mean, I got mad when my granddad told me that story because, like, I think that's part of the reason he's not a Christian to this day. Faith is not blind faith. It's not belief in spite of the evidence, but it's belief on the basis of evidence of who God has revealed himself to be. And this is actually exactly what's in play in the story of Abraham. So, you know, if you're Abraham, here, you know, what do you know? You know, okay, that this God is pretty, pretty unusual. He keeps all these promises. You know, he's never failed me. Okay, fact number one. Fact number two, this God who makes all these promises and who's never failed me, he told me that through Isaac, I was going to have like a billion jillion descendants. So like Isaac, he's like 13 at the time. No kids, you know. So Abraham's thinking, okay, well, either God is a liar and like, I, you know, Isaac really is going to die and God just like lied to me or like maybe he's going to somehow like spare Isaac's life or maybe Isaac's going to die and like maybe God's going to like bring him back to life. You know, I think that's kind of what's going through Abraham's head. In fact, if you go to the New Testament, the New Testament's kind of like your answer key here to what really is going on in these stories. This is, uh, let me just read this little account about Abraham from Hebrews 11. Uh, so this just kind of tells you what really was going on. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He would receive the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now notice this, Abraham reasoned. He reasoned. So if you think that faith and reason can't ever go together, if like faith is just blind faith, well then, Look at this verse. It says, Abraham's faith was based on reason, reasoning. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, you look at a guy like Abraham, you think, wow, I could never, ever, ever trust God like he does. But, I mean, this guy was a failure. <laughs> this guy, you know, he may not even have been like some brilliant, super faith guy, but he just, like, just kind of used what he knew about God. And he said, if this is who God has shown himself to be, I think I have enough information to trust him. Through the world's eyes, what Abraham was doing looked totally foolish. I mean, he was throwing away you know, the very thing that he'd been waiting for. Uh, you know, he'd thrown away the thing that he had hoped for upon hoped for. And it's as though in this moment, when God is asking him to surrender everything, it's as though he's asking him a question. And this is the question that God is going to ask every single one of us whenever he calls us to walk before him in faith and surrender. The question is, what do you really trust in? What do you really trust in? You know, do you just trust, do you trust in Isaac? Do you just trust in the gift that I've given you? Or do you trust in me? Do you trust in the giver? The message of the whole Bible is that if you put your trust and the gifts, if you put your trust in anything other than God himself, it's going to completely let you down. It's, you know, Isaac isn't God. <laughs> gifts aren't God. And those things are never going to be able to bear the weight of all the longings of your heart. And in fact, when God asks you to surrender something, you know, like, I'm sure if you've ever been in a situation like this, it, it, it not only doesn't make sense to the world, but it probably is not going to make sense to you. Um, when I was... Uh, living overseas, I met a guy who was a former Muslim. And this guy had become a Christian. 
Um, and it came at great personal cost. I mean, if you think that we have it tough here in the United States, I mean, oh my goodness, just talk to Christians from other parts of the world. Uh, this guy, uh, he actually, I, I guess he, he was American, but his family came from another country, were very kind of traditional in their understanding of, of being Muslim. And so when he became a Christian, his family essentially disowned him. Um, it completely flipped his life upside down. You know, he lost his family, surely many of his friends. Um, there was another uh, person years before that, a guy named C.T. Studd. Maybe you've heard of this guy. He was a famous um, cricket player in England. And when God got a hold of his life, he basically gave away his entire fortune. He gave up a, an amazing cricketer, cricketing career that could have been his. And he moved overseas to go be a missionary to the people of China and later to Africa. And when he was asked, you know, when he was talking about what he did, he just said, what was all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes faced with eternity? What's all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? So, I don't know where you're at tonight. Like, maybe you actually know that God is, like, kind of tugging on the strings of your heart. You know that there's something that he's, like, poking at you with. And you know that there's something he's calling you to surrender. If you are scared because you don't know what's going to happen if you obey God, like, that's exactly the place that you should be. You know, like, in the Bible it says, your word's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Like, if you're driving in the middle of the night, and let's say you're trying to drive, like, from here over to, like, Round Table, where the, thing's gonna, the trivia night's going to be next week. Um, you know, how, how many feet can your headlights illuminate as you're driving along? Well, maybe, like, I don't know, 100, 200, 300 feet? The only way that you're going to know what's ahead is if you just keep driving. You know, uh, or you know, another example. Imagine that, like, this is a diving board, and I'm standing on the edge of this diving board, and I'm looking down, and I can see the swimming pool. <laughs> and, you know, like, how crazy would it be if I, like, pulled out a measuring tape, and I measured the exact number of feet from, like, me to the surface of the water? Maybe I, like, kind of put a little thermometer in there, like, kind of tested the temperature of the water. Maybe I, like, even, like, looked around and was, you know, just really careful to be sure that, okay, like, if anything happens to me, like, that person looks like a really good swimmer. They can come rescue me. But, like, if I've swum before, you know, let's say I'm, like, a really good swimmer, like, that's crazy. That's crazy. You know, like, all I have to do is just look down and say, well, there's water. I know how to swim. I'm just going to jump. If you knew everything that God was going to do in your future before you've even stepped out in faith and surrendered to him, it wouldn't be faith. It wouldn't be faith. If you know that God is calling you to obey and you're scared because you don't know what the future is going to hold, You've got to step out. You're never going to know. You're never going to see God confirm until you actually take a step. Until you actually take a step. So, this is Abraham's experience. Like, he had actually done this through the course of his life. And what had all of that amounted to? It amounted to, to kind of the second big lesson um, that he had learned about surrender, which is that God is totally trustworthy. You know, when I look back on my life, oh my goodness, I mean, I'm not super old. I'm pretty young. But even with, you know, being young, I can look back and I can even still see, like, ways that there were all these crooked lines that God is, like, in hindsight, shown to be straight lines. And that's what life is like. It's like, you know, it seems like none of these things make any sense, God, but then you look back and you realize, oh my goodness, like, there was a storyline, there was a plot, God was behind all the scenes he was behind. God's going to take all things, he's going to work them for good. He's totally 
trustworthy. You're going to one day, as you step out in faith and trust him, look back and realize everything he was doing, he was working together perfectly for good. And in fact, Abraham didn't even realize the full extent of this. You know, to Abraham, you know, he's just, you know, it's just him and his son, right? Little did he know that what he was doing in obeying God was actually part of a much bigger picture. He didn't realize that every step he took up the mountain was actually a shadow of a much bigger story. Watch this. Look at this. So here's a story about two guys, Abraham and Isaac, a father and a son, and they walk up a mountain with two others. Kind of reminds you of the way that Jesus walked up a mountainside for a special transaction between him and his father and was crucified between two others. He leaves the servants behind, Abraham does. He says, you know, says the two of them went on together. And when Jesus died on the cross, only the father and Jesus himself were able to go into the darkness of what happened there. The amazing truth is that he actually, like, we don't fully understand everything that happened on the cross. Like, I think one of the reasons eternity is eternal is that it'll take an eternity even to plumb the depths of that. The Father and the Son went up, ultimately, up the hill of Calvary alone. And the two of them went willingly, Abraham and Isaac did, as did Jesus. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Abraham takes the wood and he lays it on Isaac's back in the same way that God laid the wood of the cross on Jesus' back as he carried the cross up the mountain called the skull. Abraham is the one carrying the fire and the knife in the same way that it was the father who smote Jesus with the fire of his wrath against our sin. And, last of all, did you notice that when they're walking up the mountain, Isaac asks his father, he says, Father, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. Well, the end of the story is we're going to see there is a substitute sacrifice, but it's not a lamb. It's a ram. So where's the lamb? Didn't, didn't the story say that there was going to be a lamb? Well, what I don't think Abraham fully realized was that the real lamb wouldn't come for another 1,500 years when Jesus, the lamb of God, came to take away the sin of the world. Oh, my goodness. I mean, did Abraham, did he have any idea of how God was taking all the crooked lines of his life and actually drawing straight lines? And it's going to be the same thing as we step out in faith and obey in our own lives. The last thing that Abraham learned that I want to look at in this story is that surrender is totally worth it. Surrender is totally worth it. Let me just keep reading. Uh, verse 9. When I go to the next slide there, Travis. Uh, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. 
he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. I just want to show what comes out of Abraham's testing and out of his surrender here. Number one, his intimacy with God. Abraham gains a greater trust of God. He actually learns a new name for God in verse 14. God is called the Lord will provide. Like he gets to, you know, God gets to have this name um, because of Abraham's personal experience. Abraham had that kind of intimacy and access with God. And Abraham is actually the only person in the whole Old Testament who's called the friend of God. So he gained greater intimacy with God. He also gained a greater joy of his own salvation. Uh, you know, this is something that is just, you know, I don't think we talk about this enough, how like, you know, sometimes obedience seems kind of hard. It's actually the very most joyous thing you could ever, ever do. Um, I want to read you just a little quote from a guy named Jim Elliott, who was a missionary. Um, and he was a guy who kind of surrendered a lot and, and did a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense at the time. He was in love with a woman named Elizabeth, but he believed that God was calling him to be a missionary, and so he, he put that first. And, and so he, he went off. He went off to South America uh, and, and probably, you know, didn't know that he would ever get to marry this, this love of his life. And a number of years go by, eventually, like, God moves, and they're able to, to be in the same place, and they get married. And, but what I want to read you is actually uh, what he writes in his journal as he, after all these years of preparing to follow the call of God, after surrendering all these really, t- really hard things, just listen to how he describes what it's like to finally uh, be setting sail and to, to be sailing down to South America for the first time. He says, With much joy we have arrived at last at the destination, and my joy is full, full, full. Oh, how blind it would have been to reject the leading of those days. How it has changed the course of life for me and added such a host of joys. If you want to have like a deeper like sense of God's work in your life, just obey. Do what he's calling you to do. Step out in faith. Surrender. Uh, this is what Abraham experienced. Look at the next couple of verses, 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. He gets an assurance of his salvation here. And then last of all, so intimacy with God, joy of salvation, one final thing is a powerful witness. If you read the next chapter, chapter 23, this is where Abraham's trying to buy this field from uh, the Hittites, these, these other Gentiles. And Abraham comes to them and says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm not from here. I'm an alien and a stranger among you. And they say, oh, no, 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 no. Abraham, you're a prince among men. Because they've looked at Abraham's life. They've seen how he lives. And they say, there's something different about you that we can't quite figure out. And this happens after Abraham's step of faith. So when God leads you into a life of faith, people are going to take notice. They're going to recognize that there's like, like a, a durability and a power to your life that can't be explained by anything else except God. Faith, through walking by faith, God can give you an unanswerable life. 
So just, we're going to wrap up here, but I just want to encourage you. Um, you know, I know that we're probably all in different places, but just tonight, I want to I just raise the question, is there something that God is calling you to step out in faith in and you can't see what the outcome's going to be? Ask yourself, do you know that this is something that, like, you can be pretty confident that, like, God is in. Do you know that he's faithful? Have you experienced that in your life? Have you seen that in his word? And if the answer is yes, then what, what do you have to lose? I mean, you might think the answer is a lot, but I can guarantee you that compared to anything, weighed against Jesus, all of that stuff is just rubbish. If God is calling you tonight to step out in faith, then can I plead with you, do it. Do it. Father, thank you that um, you've given us the story of what it looks like to not be perfect, um, but just through the course of our lives, just to go deeper in what it looks like to trust you. Just help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.